Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs, as well as two times the amount of Ben awesomeness this week. We've got Ben Stark on the show. Welcome, Ben. Hey. We're very, very excited to have Ben joining the show, and I'm very excited to uh, confuse everybody and my two co-hosts this week by calling each of them just plain Ben. I'm going to have to figure out what to do here, gentlemen. Yeah, looking forward to talking to Ben S. All right, so we've got a lot of exciting stuff. We want to make sure that we uh, get as much time with Ben, Limited Master, this week as we can. So we're going to get through our business very quickly this week. First things first, we're talking about that Lords of Limited Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can give back to the show if you so choose. StarCityGames.com is a sponsor of the show, and you as well are a sponsor of the show if you want to head over to the Patreon and give back to our show. We've got a lot of sweet perks. Some of those perks are when we have awesome guests like Ben on. You can pose questions for him. So we've got some listener questions later on in the episode to throw his way. And those are just some of the things that you get through access to the Discord, access to our show notes each and every week, access to our spreadsheets for our decks and drafts and all that good stuff. That's all found through the Patreon. And we want to make sure that we welcome each and every week our new patrons. So we're going to welcome to the fold this week, JB, John, Glosu, Gabby, Dennis, Trey Games, Sean, Matt, Joachim, Arturi, Brian, and Mick Greasy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. People that support the podcast on Patreon are heroes, as well as all of you people that tune into our streams, support our streams, just listening to the podcast, spreading the good word. You are all awesome. Lords of Limit is now also partnered with Coalesce Apparel and Design, Magic's newest apparel company. And as part of that, we have a gift code for you to get 10% off your order, which pertains to any apparel on their website, not just Lords of Limit merchandise. And that code is LOL, all caps. I got my Lords of Limited t-shirt in this week. I know you did as well. And we had some sweet tweets at us and posts in the Discord of people sporting their new Lords of Limited swag. So if you've not had a chance to head on over to coalesceapparel.shop, please do so and pick up your Lords of Limited shirt today. Last thing to talk about is very, very exciting. This is a huge week for Lords of Limited. Not only are we having Ben Stark on the show, which is super exciting, but we're going to be doing our first ever live recording in Las Vegas at Magic Fest Vegas this week. Ben and I are beginning there uh, Thursday. We'll be there Thursday through Sunday doing all things magic related. And one of those things is going to be recording our first live show at 10 a.m. on Friday, August 23rd at the Las Vegas Marriott Hotel, just across the street from the convention center where the Magic Fest is. Uh, Stay tuned on Twitter for uh, more information about that as the date gets closer. We're looking forward to seeing you all out there. Yeah, come say hi at Vegas. Can't wait. Four days and counting. All right, so M20 is sort of the name of the game these days. Ben Stark, I know you've been drafting a lot on Arena, and I'm excited to sort of get to talk to you about a lot of things, but sort of uh, talking about navigating that versus maybe navigating paper drafts or MTGO drafts. And so we've got a little M20 roundtable here to springboard our discussions for the day. So would you like to take a seat? Sure, sounds good. All right, so pack one, pick one. You see the following cards as options. There's a Frost Links, two and a blue for the 2-2, when it ETBs tap target creature and opponent controls. That creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. There's a Howling Giant, five green green for the 5-5 five, five reach, when it ETBs create two 2-2 two, two green wolf creature tokens. Ancestral Blade, one and a white for the equipment, when it ETBs create a 1-1 one, one white soldier creature token, then attach Ancestral Blade to it. Equipped creature gets plus one plus one and has an equipped cost of one. And your rare is Shared Summons, three green green for the instant. Search your library for up to two creature cards with different names, reveal them, put them in your hand, then shuffle your library. What are your thoughts there, Benes? Uh, I would take Ancestral Blade. I, th- I think it's the best of these by a pretty substantial margin. That card is just a lot better than it looks. And is there any any thought to because white is the worst color that maybe you want to avoid that on Arena or you're still Ancestral Blade's good enough here that you're, you're into it? So, I mean, it's pretty hard how to properly like kind of factor in arena and the bots because i mean i don't even know what they're going to do but i've done a ton of drafts on there and i've had a lot of success with white decks so even if white is the worst color in the format i don't think the bots are like drafting the white cards very aggressively so i by no means am i trying to avoid white on arena yeah i would say that maybe prior to our episode last week that I would have been like pretty down on Ancestral Blade, but it just seems so important to all the different four color strategies, maybe less so to blue white, but like even in blue white, you're still pretty happy to have it. Just seems like it brings along a disposable body and it also like 
amps up everything else, like makes raise the alarm better, makes your flyers better, yada, yada, yada. I, I, I'm into Ancestral Blade. I mean, obviously, I'm partial to dirtily cards like Shared Summons, but Ancestral Blade seems fairly responsible to me. Yep, that was what I took. Moving on to pack one, pick two. Pretty clear Cloudkins here, here. So I think we're going to skip over this pick. There's nothing really in contention at all here with this Cloudkins here. So moving on to pack one, pick three. You see the following cards as options. There's a Silverback Shaman. Three green green for the five four trample. When a silverback shaman dies, draw a card. Lavakin brawler, three and a red for the two four. When it attacks, it gets plus one plus zero until end of turn for each elemental you control. Audacious thief, two and a black for the two two. When it attacks, you draw a card and you lose a life. And spectral sailor, single blue for the one one flash flyer with the activated ability three and a blue, draw a card. Definitely spectral sailor for me. I think that card is fantastic. Everybody sees the win the late game aspect of it. But I think the part of it that gets undervalued or neglected is the fact that a one mana one one flyer, if you play it on turn one, is going to deal six to seven damage before a game of limited is probably going to end. So you get that plus the drawing cards aspect that wins the late game. The reason you don't normally play one mana one one flyers is because if you don't play them on turn one, they're so bad. So this is a card that's a good one drop on turn one as far as dealing damage, and it just wins any late game that's in a stalemate. It's just a really good card. Yep, I agree. That's what I landed on as well. And now we get to the really interesting picks. So in our pile, we've got Ancestral Blade, Cloudkin, Seer, and Spectral Sailor. Moving on to pack one, pick four, you see the following cards as options. There's a Rabid Bite, one on a green for the sorcery. Target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. There's a Metropolis Sprite, one in a blue for the 1-2 flyer, and has the activated ability single blue to give it plus one, minus one until end of turn. And there's also a Mask of Immolation still in the pack, one in a red for the red equipment. When it ATVs, create a 1-1 one, one elemental creature token and attach Mask of Immolation to it. Equipped creature has sacrifice as creature, deals one damage to any target, and an equipped cost of two. I mean, I would take Rabid by it. It's, you have two blue cards, one white card, and you first pick the white card. White's like the worst color in the format. Still perfectly fine. If you see white, you play white, but you're, you haven't seen any white. Uh, Rabid Bite is solid removal. I don't know even what else I would consider. I guess maybe Metropolis Bright. It's a solid two drop, but it's totally like replaceable. And I mean, Rabid Bite is just a much better card than Metropolis Bright. Is there any thought to on Arena wanting to get deeper into blue here just so you have more flexibility down the road? Is like, is this pick any different for you on MTGO versus Arena at all? So that's a really good question and a, and a potentially really complicated one. Yes. Can we go down that road? Let's just do it. We're here. Let's go, let's go down that road. We can go anywhere you want. But uh, so I'm when I'm drafting on Arena, I'm not really focused on can I win 61% of my matches instead of 60 by kind of best exploiting holes in the bots? I'm usually focused on drafting the same way I would in Grand Prix and Mythic Championships in person, because I assume at this point, the vast majority of people aren't doing all their drafts on Arena or necessarily most of their drafts on Arena. I mean, some people certainly are, but, and also those aren't even the more important ones to them necessarily. A lot of people, especially if they're competitive players, maybe practicing on arena, but then they, they want to go do well in their PTQ or their Grand Prix or whatever. So, I mean, I try and draft the same on arena as I would in person. And I recognize that you could do better potentially if you found holes in the arena bots and you took advantage of them, but I don't even really try and do that. And is that just that boils down to personal preference or like, cause it seems like somebody that's spiky would want to try to try to exploit the arena bots. Is that just not interesting for you? I'm not saying it's not interesting. I mean, it might be extremely interesting as a new puzzle to solve, you know, having drafted for, I don't even know how long this at this point, over 20 years. But I feel like it's just probably, um, well, one, it might bias me into bad ways unless um, a lot of the higher level competitive drafts end up on arena because a lot of it has to be um, intuitive. Like you do a lot of thinking beforehand and analyzing beforehand, but when you have 40 seconds to make a pick and you have to consider everything that you already have drafted and all of that, you need to have all that stuff already like built in so that you can just decide, you know, between the key cards there. And then also, I mean, I'm making content, like I said, and I assume that uh, a lot of people, you know, they want to prepare for the for the Grand Prix drafts, for the uh, MCQ drafts, not just, uh, you know, how to beat the bots by another one or two percent. Right. That makes sense. So if you're branching away from Metropolis Sprite here, if pack one, pick one, what are you on as the better card between Mask of Immolation and Rabbit Bite? I don't really even think that's that close. Like, 
Mask is fine. Like, it's usually going to make my deck, if I'm red, not even always. I like Ancestral Blade so much because it's a 2-mana 2-2. That's not a good card, but it's a relatively efficient 2-drop. And then it turns into this powerful card in play after they trade where you can, you know, buff an attacker, then move it to a blocker. Mask of Immolation doesn't pump the creature. Damage doesn't stack anymore. It doesn't really do a whole lot. Like, sacking creatures to deal one point of damage is not usually a better use of a creature than attacking or blocking. So a two mana one, one is like not an efficient creature. And then the ability to like give your creature to sack to deal one to another creature or the opponent, instead of trading it off in combat, doesn't seem like a lot of value to me. Don't get me wrong. If I have multiple skeletons and a ton of removal and a grindy red black deck, and I'm worried about closing, or I have some kind of hyper aggro deck really low to the ground, and I feel like it could give me that last three or four points of reach, I'm, I'll play it. I don't think it's unplayable, but I think Rabid Bite is a lot better than Mask of Immolation. All right, very cool. That is what I landed on. Moving on to pack one, pick five, you see the following cards as options. There's a Vorst Claw, four green green for the 7-7 seven, seven Vanilla Elemental. Mammoth Spider, four and a green for the 3-5 Reach. There's a Convolute as the only blue card left in the pack. Two and a blue for the instant counter-target spell unless its controller pays four. And best white card in the pack is Apostle of Purifying Light. One and a white for the 2-1 Pro Black and pay two mana exile target card from a graveyard. So I think this would be the first pick that I would disagree with you on. I think Gorging Vulture is not some great card, but... If you go blue-black grindy, it fills uh, the graveyard pretty nicely. It, like, is an efficient flyer. I don't really love uh, the other, like, okay cards in this pack, like Mammoth Spider or Apostle. Um, Apostle, I'm always going to play it, but unless they're black or using the graveyard, it's a 2-mana 2-1. That's a really bad card in this format. Mammoth Spider is a fine blocker if you have, like, a green ramp-style deck. But if you assume you're most likely going to end up green-blue with, like, Cloud Concealer and, and Sailor, sure, maybe you can kind of move in that direction, but you already have some flyers. I mean, at this point, you would have three cards that would make your deck, Cloud Concealer, Rabid Bite, and Spectral Sailor. All three interact with opposing flyers. So I, I think that I would just take the Gorging Vulture, because if I end up blue-black, um, I think it's just a. I think it's just offering more to that deck than a mammoth than the mammoth spider is to a green blue deck, or than the apostle is to a white blue deck. All right, awesome. So gorging vulture for Ben S. There, moving on to pack one, pick six. See the following cards as options. There's a leafkin druid, one and a green for the O three. Tapped at a green, and if you control four or more creatures, you can add green green. And a Frost Lynx, two and a blue for the 2-2 when it ETBs, tap target creature and opponent controls. That creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. Well, now can I get that Mammoth Spider back? Because easy, <laughs> easy, easy Leafkin. I mean, Leafkin is first pickable. It's not a great first pick, but it's a good, you know, it's like the best green common. It's, it's a good first pickable common. And I mean, there's no other cards in this pack that are close. Frost Lynx would be my second choice, but I think Leafkin's a lot better than Frost Lynx. I want to chime in with two questions here. The first is... Had you made the Gorging Vulture pick, does that influence anything here for you differently? Do you think like, well, I'd rather have like three blue cards than two blue cards, two green cards, and a black card and a white card? Do you, do you think about that any differently if Gorging Vulture was your pick from the previous pack? So what you have does influence what you take. But in this case, uh, no, Leafkin Druid is just so much better than Frostlix, I think. And I mean, we already have a Rabid Bite, so it's not like... it's not. Maybe it would be a hard pick if this was Leaf Kindred or Frostlinks and we had like Gorging Vulture and Bone Splinters and we didn't have a Rabid Bite yet. Because it would mm-hmm. definitely it would definitely hurt me to take Frostlinks over Druid like six pick. But we have if we had like two good black cards, two good blue cards, and no green cards, I'm not really sure. I'd I'd probably still take the Leafkin, to be honest, but I would see that as like a hard pick. But with like a rabid bite already, which is a substantially better card than Gorging Vulture anyway, then why would I want to take like I understand we have two blue cards, but why would I want to take Frostlings, a much worse card than Leafkin, to get to increase my chances of basically playing Gorging Vulture, which is also a much worse card than Rabbit. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like I think the rabid bite in your pile makes a pretty big difference here, I think, when you're deciding to take the druid here and my second question is there's also a dismal backwater in the pack that's the blue black uh etb tap land and i just am generally have a question about like when you're interested in picking those up in m20 how often you find yourself splashing i mean here we've got like one of the best green commons and one of the best commons in the set overall in my opinion in the pack so you're probably not taking lands over it in that instance um but when do you generally find yourself if at all 
prioritizing the dual lands in this format? I guess um, I don't splash a ton in this format. You almost always have enough playables, pretty deep. There's not a ton of great stuff to splash. Like the best black common and best removal murder isn't really splashable. It's black, black. Bone splinters and agonizing siphon aren't really exciting enough to want to splash for them. Uh, same thing with red, like Chandra's Outrage uh, isn't splashable. It's red, red. Shock, you don't really want to splash because it's not good in the late game. Reduced to Ashes is splashable and it's a fine late game removal. And maybe if you have like a free source or two, you'll splash one. But you don't have like a reduce at the end of the draft and you go, wow, I really wish I could play this card, right? Like it's just not that good a spell. Right. It's an okay removal spell. It can deal with bombs, but you're almost never trading it up in mana. So, I mean, I just don't find myself splashing a ton. Sometimes I draft like a three color elemental deck, but I don't I do not do a ton of splashes into like my blue white or my blue black or decks like that. So would you say it's fair to say that you're not picking up the dual lands until much later in the draft? Like when it's clear that that's one of the routes you're going down is like a three color elemental deck where, you know, your base red green, but you've got a risen reef, that sort of thing. Yeah, then I'll, then I'll take them quite aggressively because you really want to empower your mana when you have a really good deck that's going to be splashing. But I mean, most drafts, I'm just looking to end up two color in this format. Does that differ from your experiences? I mean, I'm an aggressive, greedy deck builder and drafter. So (laughs) uh, I I mean, I wouldn't take Dismal Backwater here, but I think, you know, it is something that pops out to me with like, if we had Gordon Vulture in the pile, that, you know, if Leafkin Druid were a worse card, that it might be appealing to me i don't know even in like a two color deck i'm not mad to have a dual land or two but maybe that's incorrect i don't know but i i I would agree that i have not found myself splashing a ton in this format except for that the most often is when you're in the teamer colors because those seem to have the most synergy there's not a lot of synergy across three colors elsewhere Right, right. I definitely play three color, two in a splash. Some Once in a while, even straight three when the mana gets there, team or elemental decks. And that can be any combination. It could be blue, green, splash, red, red, green, splash, blue, whatever. But uh, yeah, outside of that, I don't do it too often. I mean, I would never cut uh, one of those dual lands from a two color deck. I just don't think it's something you care that much about when you have that. Like if you have a two color blue, black deck, you're not going to cut a dismal backwater, not unless you have multiple copies. But I mean, how much better is your deck if your lands are eight islands, eight swamps, and a backwater than if they're nine swamps, eight islands? I, I just think it's a very small amount of value. It's not a ton, right? Though I, I guess like maybe the counter argument to that is you're talking, you're you're saying this, and I feel like my experience is the same. Is that like you're usually set on playables, like, and, and if the delta between, and I think this is true, the delta between like the best commons and then up uncommons and rares in the set versus like the filler commons and the rest is pretty big. So I feel like whatever my 20 through 23rd cards are, doesn't really matter a ton. And so it's in those instances where I'm like, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to have a a land here that makes my mana base just a little bit better because I don't really care which of these filler creatures I have. I think that's very sound logic. I've definitely talked about that concept myself plenty of times that uh, when you're upgrading a land, that that can provide a lot more value because you're upgrading a basic swamp compared to upgrading your 23rd into your 24th. I just, like I said, though, I don't really see a lot of value in Dismal Backwater in a two-color blue-black deck. Better than a Swamp or Island, sure, but it's so marginal, so it's not specifically better than, like, upgrading your 23rd into your 24th card. If it was, like, a Cryptic Caves or something that can win you a game effectively out of the land slot, then I would be taking it much more aggressively yeah that makes sense i think that's a great place to wrap up our round table here so we went six picks deep i did end up in a blue green splash black deck for a molder vine reclamation and i'm currently 1-0 on arena to be continued good luck sweet yeah that's a best of one i assume yep best of one nice so we're going to get into interviewing ben a little bit here so just to start off with ben it's it's generally accepted that you're one of the best limited magic players on the planet Can you sort of dial into why that is, in your opinion? Like, why are you better at limited than other people are? Well, the largest factor is probably that I play a lot more limited than I do constructed. And I did when I was like learning magic and developing my magic skills. Maybe it wasn't even a smart decision, but I'm the I'm the kind of person that I would have a a constructed PTQ coming up the next day and I would be like drafting all night instead of testing my constructed deck regardless because I've just always really, really liked drafting and playing games of limited and always been kind of medium on constructed. And so you think just sheer volume of limited has helped you become better than other people? I think so, because I mean, 
look, I'm not saying that if you're somebody who doesn't really get magic well and you just put in share volume, you're going to be great at limited. But if you're somebody who does get games and does have the mind for it, then magic is extremely complicated. So it takes a lot of hours, a lot of reps. And like I said, especially like I'm talking dating back 20 years to when I was like uh, coming on the scene, like starting to play PTQs, like kind of developing my skills. And uh, I was just always drafting. Like, I mean, we used to go to our friends' houses in South Florida and just stay up all night drafting. It was just like all the time, just like constant drafting. I never played constructed for fun. I would play constructed if I was working on a deck for a tournament sometimes. And then, like I said, once I felt like it was good enough, I would set it aside and go back to drafting. Cheers to that. I never play constructed for fun. Either. Yeah, I can tell we're going to get along for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> so I, I guess the question is, so then if it's if it's like sheer volume or if that's part of it and if it's uh, that it's been for so long, right? You're saying 20 plus years of playing limited. Is the foundation of your limited experience different? Like, did you learn the game in, in a specific way or learn limited in a specific way? Or was it, you know, you learned how to draft back before there was any content out there basically uh, about how to do it. So was it just that it you had to teach yourself so much or had to learn from your peers so much? I'm just wondering about what that experience was because it's so different from even what, you know, when Ben and I started learning how to draft you know, I should say for myself, when I, you know, got into drafting like seven, eight years ago, there was even already so much stuff. There was CFB, there was limited resources, there was a lot of content for me to consume to try and get better. But I imagine that wasn't the case for you. Yeah, there was no content back then. Uh, like, I mean, it literally didn't even exist. We uh, definitely just played infinite, talked about everything. Like, luckily, I've always had the personality where like, I'm not like afraid to be wrong. I, I actually like it when people point out that I'm wrong because it means I have the opportunity to learn. So we just always debated and argued and analyzed and argued and uh, kind of reasoned through it, like just my play group and everybody in South Florida back then drafting. And then um, like moving from there, we started going to like PTQs and Grand Prix and all of that. And we just always seek out like drafts and they were way more accessible back then. So we were just always doing drafts against the best players we could. Like, I remember when I was, you know, a kid from Florida who didn't really know anybody, but we were just doing these drafts at Grand Prix against just the, the greats in the game at the time. People like William Jensen or Finkel or whoever, just um, Bob Mayer, Neil Reeves, who I ended up becoming pretty good friends with and actually started getting a draft with. They were just cleaning up, you know, in the team drafts back then. And we were just, you know, I was always happy to play against them for the learning experience and to pay attention to what they were doing. And like I said, I've always been the kind of person who overanalyzes everything. So it's not like I'm doing that draft really focused on I, I have to win. I'm doing that draft focused on paying attention to everything that these great players are doing, what what cards they're playing, how they're playing differently than me. With just trying to learn as much as I can first and foremost. That's one of the things that I enjoy most about your stream is, and you've said this multiple times, you know, sometimes like, I think you've now amassed a consistent enough viewership that people are used to this. But you know, if you start roping or whatever, you know, chat freaks out as Twitch chat likes to do. And you're like, I don't care about winning or losing right now. I care about making the right decision or talking about it or thinking through this decision as much as I can. And that's such a unique perspective. I don't see anybody else sort of, you know, maybe sacrificing winning versus making sure that they're thinking through all the possible lines or figuring out what the correct decision is or what the, the possible routes are to victory there for you. I think that's just such a unique thing. Is that that's just something that is a ingrained in you or is that just a, a personality trait is that something you've worked at definitely not something i've worked at like uh just how i naturally am um yeah i guess it's weird uh because it's not really what you would think of as a spike or whatever which mm -hmm. i don't necessarily claim to be or anything but certainly if you were sorting by the normal magic sorting hats i would be but i mean yeah um i mean like i definitely am more focused on winning and i mean the focus of that is still trying to solve the puzzle for best play solve the puzzle for what card provides the most ev so i mean yeah i'm not in it for the lore i'm not in it for pulling off cool things i'm in it for maximizing my win percentage but it's about that like solving the puzzle not the outcome right? Like it's just a game, right? Like the outcome winning and losing is like 
is like the byproduct. It's the, the great part to me is figuring out how to give yourself the best chance to win, not whether you actually end up winning after you do that. And so piggybacking off that sort of a little bit, you know, you said you had a chance while you were growing up and learning limited to play with some of those great players and watch them. What are some takeaways? What are some of the best lessons you've learned from some other great limited players? Do you have any things that stand out? Well, I mean, sure. You learn from everybody. I mean, if you're paying attention, if you're thinking, like I recently quoted on stream, um, Martin actually taught me a really good concept, I think, that w- would go a long way for a, a lot of people who might be struggling in limited, uh, Martin Musa, which which was basically, it's not that you always play aggro or always take cheap cards, but if you have a close pick, especially if it's early in a draft and it's between two cards, you should err on the side of taking the cheaper one because if you end up with too many cheap cards, your deck is still fine. But if you end up with too many expensive cards and not enough cheap cards, then you'll have like no deck because you have to do things in the early turns of limited, right? So I think like that's a good concept. And I think I learned that from Martin maybe about 10 years ago when uh, when I came back to the Pro Tour in 2009. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to remember specific concepts because you're talking about literally like 1998, 1999, and it's 2019. Sure. <laughs> but but uh, definitely this, the first things I noticed when I was like playing with these like great players and I hadn't had exposure to that before was just the counterintuitive, like waiting on your spells and things like that. Like when I was playing with my friends in South Florida, a lot of which back then, a lot of which are pretty tight technical players. Like they they weren't like forgetting what the cards in play did. They were playing a lot of magic and playing pretty well, like on board. But there wasn't a lot of like getting the very most out of your spells by waiting for like, by not playing them on a turn and waiting two turns later, let's say, and then getting a little more out of it and things like that. That concept as a whole was worth a lot more back then than it is now. Uh, the card's power level as a whole have just gone up, so it's less often that it's right. But that was something that definitely I didn't figure out on my own that I like started to notice when I was paying attention to like how the better players were playing and things like that. Watching you on stream and even hearing you talk now about like getting to win or making the right decision is the byproduct of that thought process. That feels to me, in my experience, like a very, very much a, a poker mentality. And I know poker has been a, a big part of your life, uh, both like I think as a, as a game, but also as a, a means of income. I think that there's a lot of reason that there's a lot of great players that overlap, you know, David Williams, Eric Froelich, et cetera, that overlap from magic and poker that I, I think there's a lot of skill set that overlap and you learn different things from each game that influence the other. And I think there, I would imagine that there's probably a lot of things from poker that have influenced your magic playing. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard because there's just so much overlap. I started playing magic right around my 11th birthday. I started playing poker regularly. I don't know. I started playing online maybe towards the end of high school, maybe like when I was like 17 or 18, but just low stakes, not super serious. I started playing like poker regularly, like for at reasonable stakes, maybe a year or two after that. So, I mean, it's been so much of my life in both that it's really hard to even like really remember specifics from before poker when it was just magic or something. But uh, I mean, there's definitely overlap in the games in terms of the skills But these are basically gaming skills, I would say. Things like cost-benefit analysis for your decisions. Things like, you know, just like analyzing like what is exploitable. Like what is my opponent doing wrong, right? Like like things like that, I guess, happen a little more in poker than in Magic. So I guess maybe once I started playing poker, I I probably better developed the ability to notice like, oh, my opponent's playing super carefully. So they're probably they're they're the kind of opponent that would probably be sandbagging creatures if they're facing a deck they think might has might have Wrath of God in it. Things like that I may have gotten a little better at after poker, but honestly, uh, it's not like poker's like a much simpler game than Magic. Like it's a fine game, but it just doesn't change really, and it doesn't have the amount of like variables that Magic does. I mean. So I don't really think like I started playing poker and then really learned concepts that I went then and applied to magic. I think it just maybe helped continue to expand my like mind for gaming. Very cool. So going in a totally different direction here on Lords of Limited, we're really big on trying to figure out the format quickly and try to figure out what the best commons are quickly and things like that so that we can get information out to our listeners. What are things that you try to do at the beginning of a format 
to try to figure out what the best cards are or what the optimal strategies are or anything like that faster than other people? Like, do you, are you a top common ranker? Do you do things like that when you look at the spoiler? What sort of do you do at the beginning of a format? That's a great question. And that that I do have a specific answer to. I generally try and take what I would call more of a macro approach. Like having played a lot of different limited formats, I think one of the things that will often hold people back is they'll think like, they'll basically be biased by like the last format or the last similar format and things like that. What I try and do when I start playing a limited format right away is like kind of take note of the way the commons are interacting with each other and develop kind of the way this format's going to play. Not things like how good is common A or how good is common B, but is flying going to overperform in this format or are uh, expensive spells going to overperform in this format or is blocking going to be really difficult to do profitably in this format? And there's a lot of things you can look for. I would have to get into like super nitty gritty for each point and we could put on like a 12 hour show instead of an hour. But I mean, like, for example, right, like if, there's a lot of uh, cheap, efficient cards that like draw a card and are useful and limited, then expensive spells are going to get better because you're going to be able to make land drops for longer, right? So in a format like M20, you have like Cloud Seer, which tells you that like blue seven drops will be a little bit better on average in your deck if you have a Cloud Seer than if you replace that with a three mana blue creature that didn't draw a card. Right. Because you'll just make land seven more often. So, I mean, those are the kind of things I look for when I'm first looking at a set. I try and think to myself, is this a format where I don't want to play many expensive cards in my deck? Is this going to be a format um, where I do want to prepare for turn six and seven and it's okay to play two six drops and a seven drop in my deck? Is this a format where I think flyers are going to be really good? Or is this a format where there's a lot of cheap aggressive creatures so flying is not going to be a good strategy because there's just going to, I'm just going to be getting attacked by two drops and three drops anyway. Uh, so that that's generally my like my first thing that I do every limited format. That is mind blowing to me because I love drawing cards and I love casting seven drops and I have never thought about how the two relate to each other. Um, so <laughs> diving in just a, a little bit deeper into like the start of a new format for you, like at, are you someone who follows? spoiler season this is something i'm always interested about of like how especially pros that are limited focused uh professional magic players like are you tracking spoiler season are you doing like draft sims before the set goes live are you doing any sort of like i don't know like proxying cards are you just like well when the drafts go live online then i'll dive in or do you go to a pre-release like what's your relationship with the set from like spoiler season to release so i'm actually not big on on the previews um I just kind of try not to develop too much of a bias uh, before I start playing with the cards. So what I'll usually do is just start jamming a ton right away. I, I do go to the paper pre-releases and stuff sometimes, but mostly as soon as the set hits Magic Online or Arena, whatever it hits first, the first day I'm just drafting all day. The second day I'm drafting all day. Because, I mean, if you can do that, if you don't have a day job, which I don't, then you can get in a ton of drafts if you're playing online and you're playing like all day. So I usually try not to do pay too much attention during the previews because I don't want to draw my conclusions about the format based on how these cards would have been in previous formats and based on other cards that I've played with that they're similar to. I want to kind of, like I was just touching on, like start playing the format and see the way the commons are interacting with each other and with the game of magic and kind of develop my understanding from that, not from the way they would have been in other formats. So then your experience of that first pack getting cracked on Magic Online or opening on Arena, when you really haven't tracked the spoilers, when you're trying to not have any biases, then what do you look for? Because then wouldn't you be sort of defaulting to like, well, card X was is similar to card Y that was good in a previous format. So I'm imagining card X is going to be good in this format. Or are, are you trying to glean different things as you're reading through the cards in the pack? Yeah, that that's a great question. So those, those for, not only the first pack, but the first couple drafts, I mean, I'm bad. Like there's no way, <laughs> there's no way in those first two, three, four drafts. Like I'm a quick learner and I've played a lot of magic, but there's those first two, three, four drafts. There's no way I'm drafting like anywhere near optimally. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to take things that seem reasonable and then play games. So like I said, I can see how they interact, how the cards in my deck feed off each other, how the cards in my deck interact with the cards in my opponent's deck and start to develop an understanding of the format. But there's no way that you could like go into a draft 
without having really like memorized and thought about the previews very much and then draft well in that first draft. I think it was War of the Spark where it was basically a pre-release Mythic Championship for the limited portion. Yeah. Um, that so, Something like that, if it was always going to be like that, I would have to change my process because I'm definitely not going to draft well when I'm trying to develop this like understanding of the format going in. Like my first couple drafts, I do not think that that I'm drafting well. But like I said, if you're going to jam all day, basically, and you're doing it online, I mean, by day two, I've done what, you know, seven, eight, 10 drafts. So it's like, okay, now I understand the format and what I'm trying to accomplish. And I start to get a pretty good understanding of the cards. So it doesn't take very long if you're um, if you have the time to just do draft after draft after draft. And as you're trying to get that big picture sort of settled in your brain, are you th- are you making more micro decisions as well about commons? Like, are you trying to rank shock versus Chandra's outrage in your head? Or are you not worried about that sort of stuff at all? Like, do you do you do pick orders mentally as after you start to get 10, 15, 20 drafts deep? I really don't. Everybody always asks me, like, you know, would you take Chandra's Outrage or Shock or whatever? So like I end up thinking about it, but generally speaking, I mean, like I try and focus every draft on not thinking like which card is better so that I take it more often, but like more like what's going to be better with what I have. Cause that can change. Like actually that example is really good since it's M20 Shock and Chandra's Outrage, right? I think pretty much everybody would agree are both like efficient removal spells. They're somewhat close in power level. Right. So how do you decide which one to take, right? Well, like if you have a bunch of like small creatures in a low curve, your mo- your biggest concern is removing that creature that can blank your whole board plus dealing damage. So Chandra's Outrage moves to be a lot better than Shock in that deck. If you have a deck with a great late game, but it's a little slow, you're mostly worried about getting run over, not trading your four mana removal spell for their four drop and picking up two points of damage, right? So Shock becomes a lot better in that scenario. So I try not to look at something like Shock and Chandra's Outrage and go, well, Shock is better in this format. I try and think like, when will I want Shock over Outrage? When will I want Outrage over Shock? In which color combinations? In which type? Because what are those decks doing? Maybe Red-White is hyper aggro, so Outrage is better there because I need to remove that one big blocker. And maybe Red-Black is super grindy and I'll have access to Murder and Bone Splinters, so Shock is better because I need to stop my opponent from getting too far ahead so I can win with the card advantage provided by like Soul Savage. That, that's the way I try and think about it. I try and understand like when I'm going to want each one, not like which one do I take 54% of the time and which one do I take 46% of the time. So as someone who's super observant in these early early 5, 10, 15 drafts that you're doing, I imagine you're not only taking as much stock of what your draft is and what your deck is doing in the games, but you're also taking stock of what you're seeing from your opponent's side, both what works and what doesn't. How do you parse out that information? What sorts of things are you looking for from the other side of the battlefield? Definitely. Uh, And that's another great question. So like, for example, I remember one one of the things I specifically figured out back in the old CFB testing house days, uh, this was for PT, like, Gatecrash, I think. Um, and Orzov then was focused around the mecha- this mechanic, Extort, where uh, you, like, paid a mana. I think it was called Extort. Mm-hmm. You paid a mana every time you cast a spell and you got to Extort, right? And so that created this weird scenario where cheap cards were a lot better than they previously were. Because if you have four mana and you're casting a four mana card with two Extort creatures out, you don't get any Extorts. But if you're casting a two mana card, you can Extort two. So your two mana cards kind of gain on your three mana cards and so on, right? So I I wasn't even playing because this was one of the early drafts and I was just like watching because I wanted to learn. So I was just like kind of standing behind a table watching. And I think it was David Ochoa was cat. He had, he thought his deck I think was bad at this point, but he had drafted like a black white deck and he was playing like some two mana two twos and whatever cards that like previous and this was early. So this was maybe I don't know how many drafts they done, but not many. And so, you know, it looked like his deck was bad, but I was watching him extort as he was casting these. And I was like, you know, it's not that this card is good, but this card is grossly overperforming from how we would have thought just from like kind of thinking about it. And then I like kind of matched that in my head and I'm like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. Of course it is. Cheaper cards are going to be better with extort. So yeah, totally. Like you have to just pay a lot of attention. You don't want to think to yourself, oh, black, white is traditionally a color combination that looks to grind. So, um, you know, two mana two twos are unplayable or you'll never like connect that. Oh, with this extort mechanic, two mana two twos are actually 
fine or good or whatever. So in that example, like I just like was standing there watching and I noticed him doing these things. And I don't remember whether we won or lost because that's not the important part. I just remember like my takeaway from that was we should prioritize cheaper good cards higher than usual and more expensive good cards lower than usual. In fact, uh, in fact, funny story, I think it was from that same format. And because of that, uh, this and this was like I said, right when the set came out, this was we hadn't done many drafts. So this isn't throwing anyone under the bus or anything. But I remember I was arguing with uh, Apollo about, I think it was Syndicate, the good white uh, common two mana two two with extort and like some powerful five mana white on common that like flyer that like, I don't know, got bigger when it blocked or something. It was like, it was very powerful, but it was like five mana and it was like hard to, to use. I'm pretty sure in the CFP testing houses, they love to refer to cards like sensory deprivation is swords to plowshares. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure they were calling this card like Platinum Angel or something because you couldn't lose <laughs> if, it was, if you had it out or whatever. I don't remember. But anyways, we were arguing about that. And this was after I had figured out the extort thing and all that. And I was like, no, Syndicate's better, Syndicate's better. And I think uh, like maybe like a month late, I think we actually made a bet on it. And like a month later, I think he he admitted that like Syndicate was better. That's awesome. Whatever. Because it's, yeah, because it, it's just like, you know, in most formats, the card that he was talking about would be better. You know what I mean? You had to like make the adjustment that like you were going to prioritize other cheap cards a lot because they get better with extort, right? Like if you draft a syndicate and then you draft uh, all expensive cards, you're not going to get to trigger it very much, right? So then it's not going to be very good either. But if you drafted like with a heavy focus on cheap cards for your Orzhov deck, then even then that card itself and the cheap cards both kind of become better because magic cards feed off each other. And so, like, it just kind of, I think, got accepted that that was the best way to draft Orzov, but it was, like, very counterintuitive because it wasn't, like, what you usually did with that deck. Sweet. So we're going to move on to some listener questions here. There's one a topic I really want to dive into that also dovetails with one of the listener questions we got. This comes from Puff OK, which is one of my favorite Discord names ever. Uh, but they say, Ben and Ethan have been saying that drafting the hard way, uh, alluding to your your famous article, is not the optimal way on Arena. How do you alter your draft strategy against the bots? Do you treat bot drafting as an imperfect simulation of human drafting? Or do you tailor your approach to maximize your win rate in that specific environment? So to be clear, I'm not saying that drafting the hard way is the best way to get the most win percentage on Arena. I'm not saying it isn't, but I really don't know. I'm pretty confident that in person, you'll get a total higher win percentage. I mean, drafting the hard way is a concept you apply it a different amount in each draft, just depending on exactly what you see and whatever. But I'm pretty sure the concept of staying open in person and kind of figuring out what's being underdrafted results in better total width percentage than jamming your first pick or picking the best color combination and trying to force it. On Arena, I have no idea which is better. Let me throw this out at you. One thing we've been trying to, to talk about, because we are like pretty interested in trying to maximize our win rate versus the bots. Like, we're, So we're treating them as two different things. We've felt like getting deeper into one color is a better way of staying open on arena rather than, you know, if you end up with five cards of five different colors to start your arena draft, you know, really trying to find the open lane, because sometimes it feels like, you know, let's say you read at the end of pack one, that red feels open. It doesn't feel like the bots always like if I read that on MTGO, I would expect to get hooked up with red in pack three. And I feel like the bots don't always do that. That, you know, I've read that red's open in pack one, but then I don't see red in pack three. Have you had those experiences on Arena? It is a good question. I just don't know that I'm even thinking about that. Like, if there ever starts being Mythic Championships on Arena or even like Mythic Championship qualifiers that I'm eligible to play in and there's booster draft in them with bots, I will be thinking about this. Absolutely. Because I do want to win. And, you know, I always want to win. But in those cases, I want to maximize. I want to get the extra 2%. But for right now... My whole focus when I'm on on Arena is to make great limited content where people can learn how to draft, learn draft concepts and things like that. And like I said, I've never really concerned myself with whether I win 62% or 60% of my matches. So I don't even think I've thought about that much. Have you had that experience, though, of like reading that Red's open and then not seeing Red in pack three? Just the bots sending messy signals. And how? And if so, how do you handle the bots sending messy signals? Well, I mean, if so, um, what you're saying makes perfect sense. The, the better way to do it would be to, stick, to have one color and then commit on your second when uh, you have reasons to do so. Like that makes perfect sense. 
Uh, but honestly, I haven't really even thought about that. So I really haven't been paying attention to the consistency of the bots from what you get passed in pack one to also getting passed in pack three. It does seem like they're drafting colors to a degree. Like if you get past like a broken rare, like in pack one or a broken uncommon in pack one, you don't usually see like none of that color in pack three. But they definitely might be way more erratic than humans. I, 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 I really have no idea is the honest answer. It's interesting because I feel like there's, hearing you talk about that makes me feel like I've got some kind of leak in my game. Because for me, bot drafting, and maybe it's, maybe I'm like, it's all psychosomatic and it's just, I open up arena and I'm like, well, I know I'm not drafting with people. And so I'm looking for differences that aren't really there. But for me, it feels like a different experience. It's not something I'm like looking for. I just feel like it happens to me. Like I, I, things that I don't feel like generally happen drafting on Magic Online happen on Arena in terms of like a consistency of cards that wheel, you know, before a certain update. Like there, I feel like there was a heart piercer bow thing going on or like pattern matcher always wheeled, like things like that. Or what Ben's alluding to with this sort of like a color feels open in pack one, but then doesn't feel open in pack three. Like, you know, getting getting those things from the same direction don't feel the same way that they do on Magic Online. But maybe I maybe my mental energy is not where it needs to be. And we can all just take a, a Ben Stark, a page out of Ben Stark's book here and just focus on, you know, drafting well and learning the co- concepts and making the right pick with the information you have at the time. Maybe that's just the way to do it. Well, I'm not going to say how to best spend the mental energy. Of course, mental energy is a resource. And uh, I mean, where to best spend it is definitely like a complicated decision. But I will say that if you're feeling that way, then you're probably focusing mental energy there and you're probably right. I don't think I really think about stuff like that. I think I just like kind of block stuff like that out because it doesn't really affect decision points. Like if you're in a draft and it's pack two or, or sorry, pack three, you're not thinking about switching colors anymore, right? It's pack three. So I'm no longer thinking about what colors I'm seeing or not. I'm just thinking about, you know, what my deck needs and which cards are going to, you know, which card offers my deck the most and all of that. So, like I said, I mean, I wouldn't think that it's um, like in your head. I think like if you're feeling that way, there's a good chance it's real. But I personally don't think I'm even thinking about that. So I really just have no idea. So do you do you enjoy drafting on Arena equally as much as you do on MTGO or in person? Like, is it is it all the same experience to you? I don't mind the concept of drafting against bots or anything. I don't enjoy it as much when the bots are just drafting really poorly. Like, I don't want to get Blade Juggler seventh pick. That to me is like, you should have to, when you're drafting, you should have to consider synergies, expecting that you're not going to just have access to 24 packs of the best, 24 picks of the best common in your color. I mean, at least uh, as a reflection of how it is in person. Maybe 10 years from now, if I'm drafting on Arena all the time and not elsewhere, then I won't care about that anymore. And draft decks can all just be five copies of the best commons. But uh, I don't, as of right now, just from a personal enjoyment, not like a strategic um, standpoint, I don't really enjoy it. Like when I see like Blade Juggler 7th, I'm like, this is just dumb, right? Like, you know, the best common shouldn't be coming 7th. But I don't mind the concept of drafting in spots in and of itself. And what percentage of your drafting right now would you say is on arena versus on MTGO or in person? Um, so, I mean, obviously like with modern horizons, for example, before the modern horizons MC, and now I'm starting modern horizons again, because I'm covering, um, Vegas next weekend. Uh, then it's all on magic online because it's not on arena. But if you're, if you're asking about a normal format, like let's say one that hits magic online and arena at the same time, I probably do the vast majority on arena. I barely open magic online anymore. I do in person occasionally, but obviously in person so much slower and less convenient that even if I'm getting together with people in person for a draft once every couple of weeks or something, that's so few drafts compared to the total number I'm doing. So probably like... If it's excluding things like Modern Horizons, probably like 90% of my drafts are on Arena. Okay, very cool. So our next next patron question is from Grunt21UT and says, Ben S, assuming I'm not prepping for a paper tournament, is it a detriment to improving my drafting skills by doing mostly Arena bot drafts? These are good questions. They're just so complicated. Like every... I mean, uh, everyone may learn differently. Uh, If you're doing a lot of arena drafts, you're learning the cards, you're going to be familiar with the tricks, you're going to be familiar with the archetypes, you're going to know what, you know, so that's certainly better than no practice at all, I think. Um, But as far as 
are you then going to get biased by what the bots are doing? Like if heart, like, as you said, pattern matcher and heart piercer bow are not cards that should be coming around. You shouldn't be able to get those cards 10th pick, but you are on arena. So then are you going to always assume that you can just take removal spells early because you'll table the heart piercer bow anyway? I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's going to make you a worse drafter if you start expecting to get you know, 10th pick uh, heart piercer bows. This is kind of what I was saying with the blade jugglers. But if the bots aren't going to get better and you're not preparing for a paper tournament, like you asked in this question, um, I mean, I guess if the bots aren't going to change and you're just trying to get better at drafting against those bots, then it's going to be perfect preparation, right? Like, Like if I had to play a mythic championship on arena that was draft against the bots, and the bots were not going to be updated. They were not going to change. They were just going to draft by whatever co- algorithms, whatever magic potion people <laughs> use to make computers like work, right? If so, I would just want to pay super. I would do the opposite of what I've been saying this whole show. I would pay super close attention to what cards were coming late and to what colors were being underdrafted and figure out how to best exploit the bots, right? As far as the question, it's like I guess the answer is like. If you are only going to play on Arena and the bots aren't going to change, I'm not in Watsi. I don't know how often they update them, how much they change based on updates, if they're looking to improve them. I mean, this might be a good question for someone who understands code. I don't really even know or how programming works. I don't really know anything about it. So I don't, I can't really tell you like how often the bots will change or become better. Well, this would just be different versions of changing, better, worse, updated, whatever. Assuming they would never change, then it's great preparation for that. Assuming they're going to change and they're going to get better and they're going to start drafting like more dynamically and more like humans, then it might be bad. You might it, it might be a detriment. So it's it's really an impossible question to answer because it depends on what your actual goals are. Right. I think that's where the difference in approach that Ethan and I have towards Arena and that you have towards Arena comes in. Because I do think when Ethan and I sit down to play Arena, we're trying to get our win rate as high as possible. At least I know I am. I don't want to speak for Ethan. Yeah, I mean, I want to be clear. I want to be clear too. Like I'm trying to win. Like I said, for me, the focus is, you know, solving the puzzle. The puzzle being what card gives me the highest chance to win, what play when I'm playing gives me the highest chance to win. I just I don't know, exploiting the arena bots, especially when it seems like they are still early in the game and there's no competitive uh, like arena drafts, you know, like tournaments or whatever. And like they might change like like we were just talking about and they might constantly change. They might get updated and they might draft vastly differently in three months than they're drafting now. Plus, like I said, a lot of what I'm doing when I'm drafting uh, on arena is making content of some kind, whether it's a stream or a video or whatever. And I assume, like I said, people want to be able to prep for their big tournaments. So it's not like I don't want to win. It's more just that like, I don't believe that the best service I can do as far as myself and as far as the public is trying to best exploit the arena bots right now. If Watsi ever says we've done it, like uh, the bots are finalized, we're going to use this exact bot program basically forever. I mean, they would never say exact. Maybe they figure out tiny ways to improve it. But basically, if they're like, we got it, like we got the bots right, they're where we want them to be. And we're going to have competitive draft tournaments. I might start figuring out how to exploit the bots, you know? Right. That makes sense. So continuing in the vein of Arena, we've got another patron question here from Abatraxium. And they say, Ben S, I feel like I routinely get at least four, I go four and X in best of three limited on Arena, meaning I want at least eight games or four, four matches. But I have a much harder time in best of one, often going three and three or four and three at the start of the format, maybe even a lot of O threes. Is there actually something different about drafting, building, or play choices in best of one, or is it just genuinely a much higher variance format? So, I mean, on the math side, it is a substantially higher variance format. The reason uh, you see the best teams do so well in team GPs is partially just because two out of three, um, two out of threes, you're a lot more likely to win. Like if you're 60%, if you're 60% in a match, you're 60% to win that. Uh, if you need to win two out of three 60 percenters, it's substantially higher. I don't forget. I don't remember the exact math, but I think it's like sixty-six percent or something that you, that you'll hit two out of three, right? So yes, it's substantially higher variance playing best of one than it is playing best of three, right? Because in theory, you have a game win percentage, just like uh, a match win percentage. 
Like pretend you're playing your opponent and you're 55% to beat them in an individual game. Now you get two out of three 55 percenters, which is going to be over 55%. Additionally, sideboarding is very strategic. Like in limited, especially where it's not like, oh, in constructed, like you play against a red player and you bring in your anti-red card, right? It's not necessarily that strategic all the time. Like sometimes it is. I'm not saying sideboarding isn't hard and constructed, but a lot of times you have anti-deck X in your board. A lot of times you have a color hoser in your board, right? But in limited... I mean, a lot of times what happens is you're like, oh, like this person has like a bunch of three twos. I'm going to board out my three, three and board in my two, two, right? Because that just matches up better against their creatures. So, I mean, there's a lot of like more subtle, like sideboarding that produces a lot of value in limited. So when you go from best of one to best of three, you lose the sideboarding value. You don't get the like compounded win percentage or whatever the proper way to say that mathematically is. And also you like you see cards in the games and then better. I think uh, the better of a drafter and player, I guess specifically player in this case you are, the better you can adjust to what you've already seen. Maybe choose when to play around things and when not to and stuff like that. So the loss of information and like I think information favors the better player. And then the loss of sideboarding, which I think is extremely strategic, and the fact that you don't get that, like, your whatever amount you're a favorite by, like, compounded, I think all three of those combined, yeah, I think, like, it just ends up being um, a much higher variance format. I mean, my win rate in, like, I've said this a ton of times on stream that I, like, generally net gems in the best of three and lose gems in the best of one. And, I mean, I frequently go, like, three, three and four, three and stuff like that in the best of one, two. Whereas like in the best of three on there, I generally get like four or five wins almost every draft also. So I, I just think it's all of those factors like combining. That one point that you made is my biggest issue with best of one. And one of the biggest field beds I think is the seeing cards part of things where like, especially with sweepers, you know, things that like warp the game in such a way where when you don't see them coming or where you don't know they they are coming, you're not going to play around them because they're rare or mythic or whatever. And then when you do see them and you're like, cool, I now can't do anything about it in game two or possibly game three because it's best of one. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that has a huge impact. There's so many times I'm playing best of one and someone plays a card and like, yeah, I could have played differently to play around it, but it was a rare, maybe even an uncommon. And I just wasn't going to do that because in the dark, it would just spew so much value. Mm -hmm. But if I knew they had it, I absolutely could have. I, I think that. I think all three of those factors just contribute. And when you, since they all work in the same direction, and I'm not sure that there's any factors that work in the opposite direction. Um, I just think, right. yeah, it, it, it ends up being that you're going to win. If The more better you are, um, the more you're going to win in best of three as compared to best of one. Moving away from some arena focused questions and maybe more some general magic questions here. Seely uh, one asks, since magic is such a high variance game, do you have any tips on how to identify when a loss is due to bad luck as opposed to a mistake? What kind of bad habits do you see most commonly in your opponents and what bad habits of your own have you been able to identify and fix? That's definitely a really good question. There isn't one clear answer, but I mean, you can think about the games. If you got mana screwed, if you got mana flooded, if your opponent got mana screwed, if they got mana flooded, you know, that if there was one card that was played that just dominated the game and there was nothing you could have done about it, some cavalier or god or whatever, then you probably don't want to think through that game too much because mental energy is a resource. If you play a good game where you and your opponent cast about the same number of spells and nobody had substantial mana problems and you just felt like you had a lot of options and maybe you could have done things differently, then I would just think a ton about that game. In fact, I would do more than think about it if you can record it and show it to a friend or who's good and you can get feedback from. Uh, I think that's even better. Uh, I think that you want to try and discard games that might bias you the wrong way. So like any, like I said, any game where like your opponent just curves out perfectly on the play, two, three, four, five has the removal and then the pump to win the game, or there's some one card that can't be answered or mana screw flood, then I would try my best to just like wipe those games from my brain. But then if you play like a good game where you cast plenty of cards and it's a close game and you had a lot of options... Then I would try and like, I would just analyze and analyze and analyze those games and look for feedback and talk about them and record them if you can and show them to people and just do everything you can to analyze those games. We got a question about Sealed here also from Avaceris who says, Ben S, what are some underrated skills you feel casually competitive players fail to consider when approaching Sealed? That's a tougher question because people tend to have different leaks. Uh, Magic is so hard that like, there's so many different things that, that anyone can mess up. So like, it's not about like all casually competitive players do X wrong, whereas all good competitive 
players do Y wrong and all great players do Z wrong. That's not how it works, right? It's like, I have different strengths and weaknesses as far as, you know, if you were to give me some sort of evaluation on like my ability to do each thing on a zero to hundred scale, some things I'd get a 98 on, some things I'd get a 92 on, some things I'd get an 85 on. And like, you just put that all together and get my like final evaluation, right? And that's just going to be different for everybody. So I don't, I get the question. It's, I get why somebody wants to ask that. But the, the problem is like, I feel like casually competitive players are not a group that consistently does something wrong. I feel like everybody is just different. Do you maybe have some common mistakes you see in Sealed then? General general mistakes or maybe a, a leak that you've seen from people? Yeah, I mean, I could say some of the most common leaks in Sealed as a whole, for sure. Uh, I think that people treat it too much like draft a lot of the time. You really need a high um, amount of synergy between things like early drops and pump spells to make them effective. So like, I think in sealed, people will look at like a two color deck with a reasonable curve and a couple pump spells and go, Oh, I have a draft deck. Like I have an aggregate, but do you, I mean, if you look, if you get it all by all means, if you get seven good two drops and five efficient pump spells and three good removal spells in your color and some falter effect and the rest of your creatures cost three and four mana and you have, of course, a draft deck is generally going to be better than a sealed deck. But once you start chipping away at that, the deck kind of goes downhill fast, right? But you, you can't have like four or five two drops and like two pump spells and like have like us two six drops and a two five drops and be playing like some kind of all out aggro deck, right? Your pump spells are just not going to be effective. If you, if you draw hands with one cheap creature, a pump spell, a five drop and a six drop, your opponent kills your cheap creature. And now you have no deck and you just play this awful game. Right. So like, I think that one of the most common mistakes is treating seals like drafts too often. It's tricky because when you really get it all, please do it. You know what I mean? Don't mess up your super broken sealed because you don't want to treat it like a draft deck. But I think most seals, you need to be prepared to play long games and to get value where you can and not expect to run anyone over. Our last question here is from Ari Lax, who's been a super vocal supporter of our show and is a member of our, our Patreon. And Ari wants to know, what do you think is the current biggest limited question you are trying to answer or hole in your limited game that you are trying to fix? Sure. And that's a great question. And Ari's a great player for anybody out there who's not familiar with him. I think that because I was, I don't want to say like covered or invented, because certainly I didn't, but well, maybe discovered, but because I was so big on like kind of the drafting the hard way concept and all of that, and it is a really good concept. Naturally, my bias is uh, the opposite. My blind spot is like, I don't identify the times that I should be like jamming on what I already have well enough. I'm good at the like, how do I like, do I take this third green card or this first red card? But later, like on pick five or six, but sometimes a card just is so good and it's in a color that's so deep that maybe it is right to just, you know, over prioritize that color like extensively. And I think I'm bad at identifying that. I think my biggest weakness that I could like get better at would be learning the times, even if it's not anywhere near the majority of times, even if it's only, you know, 5% of the time. But if I could identify those times where like after one, two, three picks, I should really be trying to play what I already have. I think I could do a little better. I think I don't understand the 5% are there very well. So you tend to err on the side of being too flexible? Yeah, like because I think like speaking in person now, not about the bot drafts, because I think it's definitely right to be way more flexible than people were. And I figured that out pretty early. I definitely like neglected, like focusing on where you're supposed to be like jamming. You know, it's like if being flexible is better than jamming, then you explore being flexible a lot, especially when you have this like early, right? Like when you're one of the people who's like discovered this, but there are times because of some of the factors like I was just talking about, like, like, let's say black is super deep in this format. So even if three or four people are playing it at your table, it doesn't matter that much because it's super deep and it has three to five commons that you wouldn't even mind first picking and eight playable commons. So then if you get if you start the draft with the best card in the set and it's a black mythic and then your second best card is a great black on common, maybe under those conditions, you should really try and play black. Because even though it's going to be overdrafted, it doesn't matter that much because it's so deep, right? Whereas maybe it's just a little bit less deep, then it's wrong to force it in that spot. 
I'm not sure exactly where, because as I said, this is an area of weakness of mine. So it'd be kind of ridiculous if I could identify it perfectly, because then it wouldn't really be an area of weakness anymore. But if you're asking where I could, I could still improve, like where I could get a little more win percent, I think my rating on where I can analyze the times that you should jam is not nearly as good as when I'm making hard picks in the times where you should be flexible. Very cool. Yeah, that it, it, this whole hour has been super informative, humbling, and I wish we could talk a lot more. But thank you so, so much, Ben, for taking the time to come talk to us. Yeah, where can people find you on social media and things like that? Uh, people can find me everywhere. Uh, I managed to lock up Benes underscore MTG on every platform. So uh, I've got a YouTube channel with draft videos and content. I've got my Twitter, I've got my Twitch stream. I stream Monday, Wednesdays and Friday, uh, sorry, Monday, Wednesday and Thursdays from like 5 p.m. Eastern to like 10 or 11 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, th those are the main places, YouTube, Twitch and Twitter. And I'm um, just Benes underscore MTG on all the platforms. And you just recently released a course on Spikes Academy, right? Can you give our listeners maybe a sneak peek or a preview of what some of that content might be if they want to enroll in your Spikes Academy course? Oh, yeah, definitely. And thanks for asking. Um, so Spikes for those not familiar with, is like a video training site. What they do is uh, the Spikes guys themselves are Magic players, and they're also really good at like the media and the production side, the side of that I'm very bad at, and a lot of Magic players are. So they've went and hired a lot of the like best players in the world, frankly. I mean, because their, ro their roster is like Paulo did a course, Seth Manfield did a course, uh, Reed Duke did a course, Corey Burkhart did a course, like... They just met, and then I just did a limited course for them. So you're talking about a lot of like Hall of Famers and really good players and really good and longtime content makers. And what we do is um, we just basically come up with like, and we do all the content, like they do the production, but all of the content is from me on my course. And I assume it's the same for all the other teachers. And uh, we just come up with like a course, basically a comprehensive course on whatever we're teaching. Uh, Seth did sideboarding, Reed did modern. So I did limited, of course. So there's just like just like a detailed, comprehensive course that covers like a lot of the concepts that I like briefly touched on, for example, in the show, like seven drops are better in formats where there's cheap cantrips that are good and stuff like that. If you, just like all of that, basically, like how you like analyze building a sealed, what are all the factors, how to evaluate the cards how you um, like draft decks, how you draft aggro, how you draft control, what, what do you analyze, how do you decide whether to stay open or commit and when, and just like everything. I mean, I'm not saying I didn't miss anything, but like it's meant to be a comprehensive course. So it's just a very detailed, comprehensive look at limited. I kind of want to go enroll in Spikes Academy right now. I'm not going to lie. I know I do too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're all fans of your show, so I'll see if I can get you like a discount code or something. Oh, that'd be sick. I think that's a great place to wrap us up here. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. You can check me and Ben W out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. He's at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Ben Stark for coming on the show and we will catch you next week for our live recording of Lords of Limited. Thanks everybody. See you later. Headset. Talk, talk, talk. We're talking. We're talking. talking. Um, if there's a mic attached to the... We're good. I can hear you oh. now. Whoa! With the headphones? Yep. Boom. Boom. Sweet. Process of elimination. Who needs technology knowledge when you got street smarts? Yeah, <laughs> exactly.